Hey everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Hope you're doing well. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact. So I'm excited to be back. You guys sadly had to record without me. Um, was it sad? Depressing? No, we actually decided we're, we're going to replace you with Josh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Hey. No, no, no. We missed you for for sure. We loved having Josh on. He was great, but we missed having you here. Yeah, I was going to say I'm um, I'm still crushed. I haven't really recovered. Oh, yeah. Understandable. My, my absence will do that to a person. Yeah. So what's going on with everybody? Where's Andrew? Uh... I'm still in Boston. I was in Boston the last time we recorded, and I remain here. Uh, and I, <laughs> well, I that's think, boring. I know. I, I feel like I'm letting people down. Um, and I can't remember because, this, you know, this is a look behind the curtain because sometimes we record and then it comes out later. I can't remember where I will have been by the time people are hearing this. So I hope that um, that nobody's life is too severely diminished by not being entirely clear on where I am at any given moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll try to make that happen. Um, anything else of interest? I know Andrew that the national conference is sold out. Yes. Sold out. Uh, it's true. Sold out it's, crowd. it's good and it's bad. It's good uh, because we're excited that people are excited to be there and I know when I see the roster of presentations and the folks who are going to be there, I know that there'll be a lot for people to learn. I expect that I will learn a lot and see a lot of really great people. But uh, it's true that if people have not yet registered, they will have to wait till 2020, which is a strange idea. But that's true. But Seems the, far away. Yeah, but the president summit, there's still room, right? Mm-hmm. That is true. So getting your presidents and chancellors there, we, we have plenty of room uh, and the, a very good um, program focused on building funding and other kinds of resources to support engagement. Uh, there'll be a focus on accreditation and the way accreditation agencies increasingly expect campuses to demonstrate student civic learning and, and institutional plans for engagement. Uh, and then just broader conversation about working together to articulate the public role of higher education and the ways that we contribute to the public good. So, yes, uh, continue to encourage and support your presidents and chancellors in getting them to the summit. That sounds good. And we were just before we started recording talking about our Compact Nation pod live recording. So if you are already registered for the national conference make sure when you build your schedule to come to our live recording it's going to be awesome very exciting Good to see us yes, in more, person more, more details to follow <laughs> but uh, exactly seeing each other in person is a good thing and um the opportunity to whoop and holler on a live podcast recording is exciting i've i've been in, in the audience <laughs> at live podcast recordings and that is a fun thing. You whoop, you holler, then you listen later, and there you are, whooping and hollering. Yeah. And I know that sounds unlikely, but let me tell you, people, we recorded live at the Midwest Conference last year, and there was whooping and hollering. That is it happened. Yeah, you, can, you can go back to the archive and confirm it happened. these so allegations of whooping and hollering. <laughs> and questions, well, too. Yeah, people yeah questions, ask. conversation. It yep. was good. No, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, that was a really good episode. Yeah. Um, well, since you haven't been anywhere, Andrew, I can talk about where I've been. Where have you been, Emily? <laughs> because part of the reason I wasn't on the last one was because I was in San Antonio, Texas, um, where I lived and worked 15 years ago as an AmeriCorps VISTA member at Our Lady of the Lake University. I got to go back, have a little vacation time, but also attend the American Association of State Colleges and Universities Conference. Um, where I presented about some of our work in Iowa around um, graduating civic-minded professionals uh, by thinking about faculty development in new ways and really engaging community partners in faculty development and course uh, construction. And so that was an exciting conference to get to present at and be at and just kind of learn from. Uh, really interesting conversations happening there 
a lot of parallels everywhere, I would say. Um, I was a little disappointed, though, because I... Do you guys know the comedian slash author John Ronson? I've heard the name. No? So ish, ish. Sarah Goats and the Psychopath Test, I think it's called. And So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Anyway, some very interesting books. And he's on um, This American Life a fair amount. And he's very funny. And he he's Welsh. He tweeted that he was coming to San Antonio to speak at a higher ed conference while I was also in San Antonio at a higher ed conference. But sadly, it was a different one. What was it? It was first year experience. Yeah, yeah. Which apparently is a conference I need to get myself to because they invite in all the authors of possible common reads and it just sounds awesome. It's great. I've tabled there couple of times and we had a table there but i wasn't the person personing the table but it's yeah highly recommend the first year experience yeah so that's where i've been jr any special updates we have our service engagement summit on monday and tuesday of next week which is our annual conference we do here in indiana so we're gearing up for that i mean we're all set it just has to to roll but it's also a stressful time leading up to that just because of, you know, the conference, the anxiety of we hope everything goes well. Um, we're expecting just shy of 200 folks to attend that. And Eva Moses Core is keynoting. I'll talk about her a little later when we do resource sharing slash pop culture corner. But that's really been my life for the last few weeks is, is gearing toward our summit and board meeting. <laughs> Exciting. Well, should we um, get right to our interview? Because that's a pretty exciting one. Yeah. I think at least. Um, this week, I got to interview Mandy McReynolds, who is someone I've known and worked with for quite some time. And JR, I know you have too. Mm-hmm. Um, Mandy has a lot of experience in higher education community engagement. She worked both at Coe College and Drake University in Iowa. And that's how I originally got to know her. Um, her and I work together to um, edit and publish the book Diving Deep in Community Engagement, uh, a model for professional development, kind of about the role of community engagement professionals. And she has since, however, transitioned to the corporate arena. She has, for the last couple of years, been with Principal uh, Financial Group. She is now the director of the Principal Foundation. So she's sort of taken community engagement and brought it to that realm. We have continued to work together um, through a variety of things, but in part through a new program called the Principal Community Scholars, which we've launched and now covers the Midwest, where we invite students in business and related majors to complete a community project. They receive some support and a network from us. They have an advisor on campus, and then they receive a scholarship from principal. And it's something that Mandy and I were really able to create together along with the um, university relations and talent development team at principal because they really view it as a potential talent pipeline of students who are interested in making a difference to their careers because that's something principal uh, wants to also do and have in their employees and it's been a way for us to support students um, doing community projects and be able to reward them for that, support them in that, make sure they're reflecting about that. So we're in our second year of that, have uh, about 30 scholars this year from across the Midwest who are actually coming to Des Moines in April for a retreat at Principal. So we're excited to bring them together. And they have just done exciting, interesting things. So I got the chance to sit down with Mandy and kind of talk about the evil corporate world, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. That's not what we arrived at. So let's uh, go right to the interview. Mandy, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. We are really, really excited to have you. Thank you so much. It's fun to be back with Campus Compact and uh, um, share this moment about higher education and how it works with our corporate world. Yeah. So tell everybody a little bit about what you do at Principal. Sure. So after a 10-year career in higher education, I transitioned to take over Um, the Principal Foundation. So I oversee our corporate contributions and engagement, both um, in the U.S. and about 13 countries around the world. 
That sounds pretty exciting. It is really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> What's been the biggest surprise for you about moving from higher ed to to this more of a corporate sector environment? Um, I think the biggest surprise has been um, how similar organizational yeah. change and development is. You know, I laughed um, when it, maybe it was like my second or third week, somebody talked about we have four different business units or divisions and companies within principle and how, oh, you know, as you work together, you know, sometimes the business units don't communicate as much. And I laughed and they said, well, have you ever worked for a big college or university? Yeah, sounds or, familiar. Or have you ever worked for uh, different colleges that have different business units? So, um I think that part has been fun is wherever you go, organizational development has similar challenges mm -hmm. and are the same. Um, but one of the most surprising pieces is how much um, corporate social responsibility is taking off. Yeah. And over the last 10 years um, in higher and um, higher ed has been so unique because community engagement has really had this 20 year history and even before that if you get mm -hmm. back to experiential education in the 1930s mm -hmm. um, and the purpose of higher education and its calling um, so what's been fun is where I left higher education and is really where corporate responsibility is sort of taking off at a yeah. different point and so higher ed was actually a little bit ahead of, of yeah. time above the corporate world and so um, you can see where it's going when it looks at assessment and impact. And you can see where the future is going because higher ed kind of had that pathway in advance of a corporation. Yeah, I would agree. I've looked at, you know, corporate volunteer initiatives, um, things like that a little bit, corporate philanthropy. And it's a similar conversation around moving from transactional mm -hmm. partnerships to more um, transformational partnerships and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, so I would agree with that. Uh, so when you and I worked together, yeah, we wrote a little book. Well, <laughs> with a lot of people. yeah, exactly. <laughs> we edited a little book. Um, so do you still consider yourself a community engagement professional in the way that we framed mm -hmm. that? I do. I think you could easily swap out the section that talks about faculty development mm -hmm. and um, staff development and intertwine that with employee development. Mm -hmm. So here at Principal, we're working a lot around in the next two years, what does it look like to learn through service? Yeah. And what's the development for a professional from the time they enter the company and orientation to the time that they get into the C-suite or an executive level? And so that's not much different yeah. than what we looked at there. So that's probably one change, but it still really is um, what I would say is similar in, in work as far as being a community engagement professional. And I still look back at the book and different things and say, yeah, there's a lot of transferable skills and thought process that happens. We work very closely with our diversity and inclusion office and officers. Mm -hmm. um, so even who your collaborative partners are in higher ed are very similar to who your collaborative partners are in corporate philanthropy. Yeah. So one of the chapters in that was about being a field contributor. Mm -hmm. What's that like on this side? Are you a field contributor <laughs> field to contributor. your, you know, your peers or is it, does it work differently? Um, I would say two years in, I'm still thinking through what that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, what does thought leadership is probably so different in term, right? Yeah. So in higher ed, are you a field contributor? It's very much about your research and your yeah. content. On the corporate side, it's really about are you a thought leader? So are you pushing your area of business um, to new directions and new heights? And I would say at principal and in the foundation being two years in, it's really hard to jump and become that and yeah. the thought leader. Um, but I do think that's something that you aspire to and, and think through how can you help corporate philanthropy change or, or set a new direction in ways that people haven't thought of before. Yeah. Well, you, you have to give me some, one thing you miss. About one thing you miss. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, um, a lot. I think that's one piece um, with higher education. I would say to anybody, you know, I do miss sometimes the learning and development mm -hmm. and that side of, of students and that type of engagement. But as a person who 
believes that the human mind always grows and it always develops and your neurons continue Mm -hmm. to make connections. Um, You're just teaching, but you're teaching in a different way when you work in a corporate environment. And so I think that's the part for me that it took about two years in for me to go, okay, you know, I don't wake, I don't wake up missing teaching. I'm just teaching differently. Yeah. And, um, but I will say I still miss that kind of classroom engagement at times. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we've worked together in your new role mm-hmm. to develop a program called the Principal Community Scholars, um, which I shared a little bit about on the intro to your interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what does that kind of thing do for principal? What are what are your goals? Sure. So I think that's one piece sitting on the funder side mm-hmm. versus the requesting side um, that has been different in my role and one of the big pieces that I think higher education is going to have to start really paying attention to is results-driven accountability. Mm -hmm. So really funders are looking for how is this program that we support in higher education feeding into our talent pipeline or areas of focus. And so when we look at the Principal Scholars Program, we really want that focus on future business students or future students who may have the potential to be a part of our business and um, lead to that talent that we'll ultimately hope to recruit for jobs and for work. And um, we love that with Campus Compact, it's a partnership with colleges and universities across different states, across different schools. And so even though a school may not be our signature partner, they may have a student who is a scholar in the Campus Compact program. And so our exposure to different talent begins to be bigger um, because we have this program that can help us reach those students. Um, But that's probably one lesson learned is how much the future of uh, funding and funding relationships are about true partnership. Yeah. Um, just like we approach nonprofits and NGOs and other organizations that way in our community engagement work, the corporate philanthropy funder side of the world is that way too. And yep. sometimes we forget that, and that's where the relationship with Campus Compact is meaningful. Yeah. Well, so you talked about that kind of partnership, and that certainly is um, something you hear a lot about mm-hmm. on higher ed, you know, corporate partnerships, corporate partnerships, corporate partnerships. But what actually makes for a good one? Like, what is a real partnership um, that you've seen? I would say mutual benefit. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at similar to community relationships where there's voice uh, for both parties, and you're looking at it saying, okay, as we look at the talent pipeline, here's some of our areas of focus or interest that we have. Who are the right partners who can help meet that need? But also that they're looking for scholarships or programs that relate to that specific area. Um, So one would be a mutual benefit for both parties. And then the second part that I would say is really listening. Um, One of the things that you find in corporate philanthropy and funding is sometimes you have this great meeting with a partner and you think they really heard what you're interested in doing and how you can partner together and they walk away and then the proposal is just exactly what they wanted to do not Uh, (laughs) the way you discussed. And so I think that part for me was a really big sign of don't come to a corporation or to a fund and and say, well, this is what I want, regardless of what you may need or what you're, you know, you may be interested in funding. Um, It, it's really that same kind of community partnership where you're looking for, you're listening for that match. You're listening for that partnership that can work together. Yeah. And I, I like the way you frame that because it takes so much of the pressure off to, to me, mm-hmm. but it's not feeling like, you know, you have to come with this perfectly crafted proposal and be ready to sell it and give mm-hmm. an amazing presentation mm-hmm. and right. that kind of thing. Like it's about a conversation about mm-hmm. what your goals really are and seeing what that corporate partner's goals really are. And I think one of the things I've learned from working with you and some more other corporate p- partners is that um, they're different mm-hmm. business to business. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't, and it, that should be obvious, mm-hmm. right? But it isn't always. And mm-hmm. um, really digging into what that looks like can shift the project greatly. Yeah. And the same is true with a nonprofit or a community partner and community engagement work, right? So you don't go into that NGO and say like, well, here's what we have. 
Yeah. And so now we're going to tell you nonprofit and NGO, like, yeah. this is what you're going to do, right? We, we have written so much research about how that's the worst way we can develop partnerships or the worst way that we can engage our community. And so I always laugh because yet we still sometimes treat corporate partners that way. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, this is our funding need and this is exactly what we want, you know, versus um, really hearing both, both sides. Yeah. And coming up with something together and having that openness. So listening, um, and really building a true partnership, what would be some other do's and don'ts, things that Mm -hmm. you might, um, have a different perspective on from where you sit? Uh, one, one that's been really fascinating. And actually we just came from a team lunch, our new foundation team that was together and we were talking about, um, there is at times with funded relationships, um, a level of disappointment if you didn't get funded at, at the level that you had hoped or um, maybe it wasn't what you had expected. And um, I think that's the part of great partnerships, you know, in group development. And I'm blanking on the theorists that I always talk about, but, you know, you form, you storm, you norm, and you perform, right? Yeah, <laughs> like that's yeah. the group dynamics and that's how it works. And that's how partnerships are built. And you then go through that cycle again. And so I think that's one thing that I've noticed is if somebody maybe wasn't funded at the level that they wanted, it's almost a sense of um, frustration or anger towards a funded partner if they oh, didn't okay. get what they expected. And I think that's an area where every group dynamic goes through that, where in a partnership you're forming and you're storming and you're norming and then you're performing. And sometimes you repeat that cycle for great um, results and success. And so we might be in a phase where we need to reshuffle the deck or rethink about, is this the right program? Or um, we may need to assess, is this really giving you the results that you hope to attain? And um, is that the right approach for us to fund? And so, um, or maybe there's other funded partners that would be a better fit and um, a better opportunity for our staff to introduce you to. So um, that part for me has probably been the most interesting is when you've had to change a funding decision or um, somebody's disappointed because it didn't come in as higher. The response sometimes isn't how do we reassess the partnership or look to the future. Um, more you get to hear about the anger and the disappointment. Oh, yeah. And wow. so um, I think that's one thing that I would I would encourage institutions of higher ed to think about is when you are funded or you're defunded, go back to the basic principles of partnership and actually engage in a good conversation and not in one that's like, why didn't we get funded or, you know, go to your highest alumni and complain. I think it's really taking a step back and saying, how do we approach this partnership for the future? And if it's not the right partner, that's okay. Maybe ask who would be a better partner for them. Yeah, continue. Um, and I think what I, one of the things I'm hearing that we, hearing you say that we talk a lot about in higher ed too and clearly translate, it's just, it's a, it should be a long-term mm-hmm. thing, right? Which means even you don't give up mm-hmm. immediately. You keep the conversation going. You keep trying. Um, if there's, if there's a chance of things. So that's interesting. um, Yeah. I'll give a good example there more generically of other institutions that we funded where, um, you know, we had been funding at a certain level for so long, but we actually weren't pulling in the talent from those schools Mm -hmm. for what we were funding in scholarships. So we went through a season where we essentially said, let's take a step back and let's reshuffle the deck and think about a pilot in a new area of scholarships for this institution and worked with that institution in several conversations and rounds, a few of them actually. And we gave pilot funding to restart and reform and storm. And we guaranteed that pilot funding for several years because pilots are pilots. (laughs) You've got to get through form and storm before you know you're going to norm. And um, I think that part sometimes is really difficult for for institutions who are used to, we get this level of funding over a course of time. Yeah. Um, but what it does is it allows um, 
it allows you to set up partnerships for success for the future. Yeah. And um, like great service learning projects or community engagement projects, sometimes you might have been doing something that worked really well for five years and then something changes, the ED changes or the, yeah. the site changes or they're serving new clients or it might not be the best fit for your learning objective. Right. And so you change for what's, what's better for the future. Um, and we just have to get to that point, even when we look at our funding relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, how do you think we could build more partnerships between corporate and higher ed um, in a way that actually does improve student learning in mm. communities? That's a good question. Uh, I think there's a lot of different ways. So one of the things that um, sometimes institutions look at is, is sort of they look at partnerships in, in many different facets. So it's like over here, you've got your career service people and over here, yeah. you've got your funding relationship and over here, you've got the marketing relationship, right? So it happens in multiple avenues and actually the most successful partnerships are the ones where you bring all of those people together right. once a year or, you know, and you kind of say, let's map out our whole partnership. Um, those tend to be the most successful, the yeah. ones that have multiple layers, but you actually have more collaboration around what the whole partnership looks like um, versus each person owning a, a separate part. And I would say that's kind of an example of when we talk about silos or yeah. business, you know, it's kind of like just as universities have that challenge, so do businesses. And so if both parties can say, let's all come together in all the ways we touch and work together. Um, I just see stronger results, better talent coming in. I see better opportunities for the university. I see much more collective decisions on what somebody's going to apply for for funding. Um, I see a lot more that's happening where it might be like the business unit funds a certain side and the foundation funds a certain side or the corporate contributions fund a different side. Um, so the opportunity becomes broader because yeah. you've had a more well-rounded conversation. So speaking of those silos, you know, one of the silos in community engagement is often that partners are um, profits. That's, who's, that's who partners yeah. are. Um, they can't be businesses because that's not community. That's not, you know, that's not meeting a need. Yeah. Do you see it? I mean, do you see it differently right. now that you're here? What are the, what are opportunities so, there that we're missing? Sure. I think that, so if you go back to like the engaged university research, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of it talks about how eds and meds, right? Eds and meds are these institutions that have been there for a really long time and they're not going to go away. Well, I would now being on this side of it, look at it a lot differently. I would say eds, meds, and strategic institutions in your community. And that would include somebody like a principal that has an over 100-year history mm -hmm. in the community who was one of the first funders to start um, the chess fund, the community chess fund, which is now our local United Way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in some ways our research got really limited where we didn't take a step back and say, well, what other institutions in our community have mm -hmm. been around for a really long time and have significance in staying power? They're not going to pack up and they're not going to leave. Um, so I think that work needs to be expanded a little bit more, not just to um, a big Fortune 500 company like us. I think there's other pillars. Maybe you're from a smaller town in a smaller institution, yeah. but there's businesses there that have been around for years, um, that could be equally a great partnership. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting, and I, I think the next generation is driving some of this, it's just a real blurring of what the different sectors are. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily as uh, straightforward mm -hmm. as, you know, the public and nonprofit sector does social good and mm -hmm. the corporate sector doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little more complicated. Well, you won't be in business if you don't. That's <laughs> exactly, it. exactly. Yeah, I think that's probably the the best part of my job. You know, I get to wake up every day and think about our what's called our EO, e, um, our environment, governance, and social EGS. 
score. And okay. so it's our environment, government, and so governance and social score. And our business, especially like in Europe and other parts of the country, we're asked for that score in our RFP. And so if you're just an average performer and your fees are equal to someone else, um, most people will lean more towards the one that has the higher EGS score. Mm-hmm. And so every day, the work that we do impacts business. And I, I love the generation that's coming up because I think they've been driving this, you know, what do you stand for? And are you a socially purposeful right. company? Um, do you have responsible fees? Do you have responsible um, investment strategy as a, as a financial institution? Do you actually take care of your people? You know, like, do you have training on diversity and inclusion? Do you have programs that mentor? Um, What's your employee engagement opinion? You know, all of that goes into how are you socially responsible? And I think the biggest piece, like I talk about at principle, is who we are is financially responsible. I mean, we are about ending elderly poverty. You know, at the end of the day, we want the world to learn more and more and save more because we want them to be able to take care of what matters most and take care of their community and their their families. And businesses are going to have to start being able to articulate that sooner than later. And I think great um, because of the 20 year history with institutions of higher ed and engaging in our communities and the social purpose of higher education, I think that's only driving that more right. in our workforce and our generation. So, um, yeah, I, I think businesses either wake up soon and be, yeah. <laughs> or they're not going to be in business in, in 10 years. Right, so. right. It's, it's interesting because that's another, so we've talked about a couple, you know, reasons for corporate partners to be in this talent development, but also mm-hmm. the score you're talking about and really the importance and the increased accountability yeah. around social responsibility. And I think there's a role for um, higher ed and other community partners to play in that and in, in boosting it and creating the accountability. Um, I think that, that's really important. So what did, what's one thing you did in, um, in higher ed that prepared you for what mm-hmm. you're doing now? You gonna take pause of that? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Like, I was like, I'm gonna add out. down because some of these are really long answers. Um, I I would say I I love that I because of my first ten years. So I count in that the two years of getting my master's degree. Um, because of my ten years in higher education. I really learned how to think a lot outside the box, you know, mm-hmm. and, and especially as a community engagement professional, like you look at the world a little bit differently. So um, you don't look at it and say, hey, what, you know, what could be possible or what couldn't be possible? You kind of look at it and say, well, okay, if we're really going to grow this community engagement program, how do we do this with student staff? And how do we look at the 7% laws with our work-study programs and leverage that to build a program? Or um, you you kind of think a little bit outside the box. And when I came into the foundation, it's a 30-year foundation. So we have this incredible history, and we we have um, some of the largest assets under management for a corporate foundation in the U.S. And there were a lot of things that we did from a financial perspective and a budgetary perspective that wasn't leveraging our resources to the fullest, mm-hmm. um, from tax credits to how we charge administration to the foundation to program operations that really weren't sustainable for the future. And so because I had 10 years of like looking at the world differently, (laughs) like scrappy, scrappy. um, I could come in and look at our budget and look at the laws and look at, look at the way we did business and say, yeah, I don't think that's how we should run our business. And we need to change our model and we need to hire outside legal and we need to go through an extensive change um, so that we can be sustainable as a foundation in the future and we can be around another 30 years. And So what you're saying to your fellow community engagement professionals is that the fact that they don't have any money is actually, it's great. It's, <laughs> it's building our skills. It's a really, really good thing. And, and I think, but also like you learn how to collaborate to get yeah. things done. Yeah. And so um, I, 
I believe the greatest community engagement professionals are one that don't approach the work as, as me, right. but we. And so when you look at stuff, you don't have this level of ego or pride of, yeah. okay, well, I can't, I've got to have all the legal answers. Well, no, that's what lawyers are for. So, yeah. so go, go talk to a lawyer and figure out what, what you need to do. Um, so, yeah, I think that part has made at least um, – becoming the director of the foundation, probably one of my greatest skills is that. And the second part is developing people. Um, when you have an education background and you have student staff for mm -hmm. my entire career, um, you take a very strong development angle to your work and yeah. to your staff and to, to the world around you. And so um, sometimes you march to a different drum because you're just used to development or science and how the brain works and um I think that part although it, it just might be a little bit different than what most people had in their career and so yeah um it changes a little bit how you approach your work and people and with that then um you tend to grow the mission a lot more right because you understand I'll give an example um you understand that if I want cause marketing to be a muscle that people understand and know yep. and learn, um, it's not really viable for Mandy McReynolds to go around to every single business unit and teach every single business unit about cause marketing. Um, what might be more viable is a cohort going to a conference on cause marketing together yeah. and really teaching and training and growing different people and then having them come back. And what, what do we know? Well, when people reteach content, they're more likely to do it and engage in it. So if you have them come back and reteach the entire marketing enterprise of yeah. 100 plus 20 people in a presentation, those five champions are going to actually cement what they've learned and, and take off in it in their work. And so um, because I have an education background, how I infuse community engagement and corporate responsibility and cause marketing throughout our company um, has a different approach. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Um, because in the end, I know it will do a really good job. Because <laughs> I'm not fighting brain science, right? Yep, like, you're I'm using it to your advantage. <laughs> that's how your brain, and people laugh here because I say it quite often. I'm like, well, that's how your brain works, <laughs> right? And so when you know how the brain works, you just, you will do things differently because you want that mind to grow and that human development to happen. Yeah. So taking it in a totally different direction because yep. my uh, my podcast guest host would be very upset oh, if I didn't have you talk about this. <laughs> so you've been working with J.R. Jameson, yeah. um, who is with Indiana Campus Compact, but also with an organization called The Facing Project, and you're doing a storytelling initiative mm -hmm. here at Principal, which when I first heard about that, I was like, a corporation's doing a storytelling Yeah, initiative? we're his first corporate partner. <laughs> so tell us more because that's fascinating. Uh, I, well, when JR started talking to me about the facing project, I was like, that's really interesting. And we have here what we call employee resource groups. And so with our diversity and inclusion across the enterprise, um, we have different focus groups on different topics. And um, one of the things that their big outcome and objectives are about how do you help share your story and how does that become real mm -hmm. to somebody else who may not have experienced your life and the lens at which you look at the world. And um, when I started working with our diversity and inclusion officer, and I asked JR if he had ever worked with corporations before, I said, well, how about we kind of just set up an, a meeting and see if there's any interest in, in really doing the storytelling project. Mm -hmm. And we had a new employee resource group, our ERG, See, we have acronyms. Oh, it sounds like, very similar. Yeah. Um, every bureaucracy has acronyms. Yeah, acronyms. That's just a bureaucracy yeah. thing. I laughed. I told somebody, like, there's probably as many acronyms than anywhere you go. Um, but that employee resource group was new. It's called Winability, and it was about individuals with disabilities and the workforce. And so oh, okay. um, they were just starting, and we thought maybe that would be a good fit if that group wanted to do more of a storytelling project since they were starting up, and so they agreed. And so um, that's been taking off with JR, and I think hopefully later this spring we'll have an event that kind of helps share that story of 
individuals with disabilities in the workforce. We also included yeah. some of our grant-funded partners okay. um, that work on employment for individuals with disabilities across um, our state. And so them sharing their stories and their experiences um, as well. So um, we'll see. It's a pilot, like any great pilot. <laughs> you form, storm, norm, and perform. So we'll see where it goes. I think it's... Um, important um, as we build an inclusive and welcoming environment at principal that we have the opportunity for people to hear one another's stories and um, great workplaces um, have that and have the opportunity for managers to learn mm -hmm. um, and for entry-level professionals including all the way up to our c-suite to hear the stories of our employees and, and learn from that and learn from that perspective. And so the facing project was a natural partner in that. That's very cool. So we'll end it by allowing you to give uh, a little bit of advice because mm -hmm. I happen to know you're a good advice giver. <laughs> no, but thinking about, so we kind of talked yeah. about, you know, um, what we're thinking about with students and, and that's what our program is focused on. So if I'm a student and, and I'm thinking, um, about a corporate career, but I'm one, not sure that I'll get to pursue my true passions and interests by going that direction. And I'm two, not sure how to set myself apart and get the right corporate job. Mm. Um, what's, what are your best uh, pieces of advice for that student? Well, I will say, um, I'll never forget when the job opened up at principal and my boss, I walked into the president's office and my boss there had said, I said, oh, did you hear that my predecessor was, like, leaving their job? And, <laughs> you know, what do you think? And they're like, yeah. And then they went, are you going to apply for that job? And I went, no, I'll never go corporate. <laughs> I walked out. And, I, you know, and then, like, two days later, I came back because I had looked at the job. And I looked at what the potential um, corporate philanthropy could be. And um, it really changed my perspective. Um, so when I tell people when they're thinking about a corporate job, I go back to what's at the heart of that company's mission. Mm -hmm. You know, I get to wake up every day and think about how are we helping people learn more, earn more, and save more, um, and move the needle in emerging markets, um, for financial security and really try to end elderly poverty. And that's a really cool mission to get behind. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think you can do is simply ask the question is, does this mission match with my life purpose and vocational calling? Mm -hmm. And if it does, go for it. Who cares? Who cares? What, you know, <laughs> yeah. Who cares what if it's an NGO or if it's a, a for-profit business, you know, and I think that's really that. And the second piece is look at the values and do they actually act upon their values? Yeah. You know, and you can ask those things in an interview. You can ask people who work there, you know, tell me how this value of integrity is lived out. Tell me how this value of um, making a positive social impact in the world uh, measures out. And um, that can help you. And the third thing is, is I, I tell people to pull their corporate social responsibility report, pull their um, environment social governance score and check it out for yourself. You know, yeah. like really look into that because those often, especially your your scores are done by third party part, uh, part, parties where mm -hmm. you, you don't influence that, right? right? right. So, um, and corporate social responsibility reports are starting to mirror what they're being reviewed on, which are some pretty intensive questions. Okay. So... I would tell people to look there, too. How much was that, like, the Carnegie classification for you? Um, every day. I'll do, you know, I do laugh um, because I was like, I feel like I'm back in classification mode. Um, but it is something that I am – that's another example of, you know, I'm so thankful for the work that I did at Drake with our team around that. And Renee Sedlicek, um, who's now their director for community engagement service learning there. But um, – that has that in and of itself really prepared me because uh, businesses are starting to get evaluated so much more strategically, right? Um, and really asking how are you aligning with global reporting standards? How are you aligning to better map out how you're reporting on, you know, your environment, social, and your governance 
um, action as a company and, and the world is demanding for it. And so I think Carnegie really helps me yeah. like <laughs> roll up my sleeves and understand um, how reporting and classifications can drive successful practices yeah. and a good conversation around what, what do you stand for and what are you really going to do for, for your work? So yeah, I do feel like I relive <laughs> Carnegie every day. So many parallels. <laughs> well, Leanne McCrell, thank you for joining us. It was Thanks. a lot of fun to interview you, of course. Great to be back. Great to be oh, part yeah. of it. Well, we know, we all know you're not really going anywhere. So. <laughs> all right. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thanks so much. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Um, I know I had a lot of fun doing that interview, partially just because I think Mandy is awesome. But what did you guys think, Jr? What stood out to you? I know you also know her and are working with her. I do. I love Mandy, and if you listen to the last podcast, I love Mandy in a platonic way. <laughs> I just always appreciate <laughs> um, I appreciate her style, her sensibility, the way she approaches community engagement. Um, I first met Mandy when I did Diving Deep with you, Emily, out in Iowa back in 2013, and I was Mandy's mentor for Diving Deep and got to know her through that process and as she's transitioned to principal. One thing that stuck out to me from the interview is when she alluded to the similarities between corporate world and higher education, our language, our acronyms, the, the layers of complexity that we have in both worlds and how similar we really are. And what I took away from that is really what we can learn from each other. And so based on my other work that I'm doing with Mandy around the facing project that you talked about at the end of the interview, uh, you know, we built our model around a campus community based approach, not thinking of corporate in mind. And so going through that process with Mandy's corporate responsibility team, we've had to really give and take around that because they're learning from us around best practice approaches and we're learning from them about how to navigate the corporate system, language to use, way to view corporate responsibility in communities. And it's been an exciting journey. And for me, it's so relational when I think about not just my relationship with Mandy, but about the work we do at Campus Compact or community engagement in higher education. Our work is relational, and so, so much of it mm -hmm. is just being honest in those conversations around campus community partnerships and being upfront about where our blind spots are on either side, what we don't understand, but what we can bring to the table and learn from each other. And that has been tremendous in our path forward, creating this campus community partnership with Principal Financial around storytelling. Yeah, I the, the relational part struck out to me, stuck out to me too. I mean, I think there's a perception of the corporate funder um, that's maybe not always positive, but, you know, it, it is very similar to how we talk about higher ed community engagement partnerships. And there are assets on both sides, there are needs on both sides, um, and it needs to be a conversation about meeting the needs all around. Mm -hmm. I also am in, in the Mandy McReynolds fan club. In fact, I think the first time <laughs> I met Mandy was uh, at the Iron Slice conference and she was presenting during, uh, they have a kind of practitioner scholar group and Mandy was presenting on the book that she edited with you, Emily, mm -hmm. um, and just did a really terrific job and led a great session and it was fantastic. But, um, but or not also or something or as a show of respect, because I do think one of the ways we show respect for each other is respectfully disagreeing with certain things. There were some things that I just I think I would I just disagree a little bit with Mandy about that I think are interesting to mention. So one is so I think she's right that if we want to understand the ecosystems in which our institutions are located and if we want to think about how we can advance the interests of, of people, of residents, of communities, we need to take corporations into account. They matter a lot. They are employers. They are purchasers. They are in all kinds of ways, drivers of what happens in places. I don't think it's the case, though, that we ought to see them as anchors in the way we see universities, hospitals, et cetera, because it is true. So in other words, it may well be that some corporations have stayed in one place for a very long time. It is the, it is the case, however, that corporations are much more mobile than universities, for example, right? It is, if you can think of a public or nonprofit university that has moved, uh, that is quite unusual. But all of us can think of corporations that have moved, 
that have moved most of their manufacturing or other kinds of operations either to other parts of the country or frequently overseas. In some cases, they may have, say, maintained a headquarters, but it might just be a shell. Or in other cases, they moved the headquarters entirely. I've spent a lot of time in cities that have been fundamentally disrupted by the departure of industries around which the city was built. And in fact, that's the reason the Eds and Meds strategy was developed, is that it was so, there are so many communities across the United States that have had that experience. And I don't draw the conclusion from that, that one shouldn't work with corporations or that corporations are evil. I do draw the conclusion that it's important to recognize the differences in the kinds of organizations one is engaging with. And one of the things that I actually, I was thinking about this as Mandy was talking, that I really respect very often about people in corporations is they are clear about their priorities in ways that I think universities sometimes are not. So the particular example from the interview is that Mandy was making it very clear that if the interests of the company are not met, so for example, if they're running a scholarship program and it's not producing you know, workforce opportunities for the company, then they're not going to do it anymore. And, and for example, when she was talking about their engagement in you know, environmental practices and other corporate social responsibility policies, she was very clear that in some markets to you know, be able to work with governments, et cetera, they have to meet certain expectations. And so they do that because it's essential to their business goals. And, and so that's, that's fine, that makes sense. They're for-profit companies, that's the priority, and these other things fit into that. And again, they can do and support all kinds of good work at the same time. I think universities often lose track of whether they are in existence to educate people, to serve the public, or to meet their budgetary goals. And you know, I think, again, corporations usually are clearer about why they exist and what they're seeking to do. And I just think it would be useful for higher education organizations and other kinds of publicly focused organizations to ask themselves the question of what are our priorities and how are they served or not served by engaging with different kinds of partners. And again, I definitely think it would be crazy to exclude private corporations from the mix but just one has to go in with eyes wide open, both about oneself and also one's partner to build useful you know, relationships that can help achieve goals. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I think that part of it is that higher ed also isn't doing this for altru altruistic reasons for the most part. Um, Maybe in the sense that we're looking at who we're graduating and the way that contributes to the world, but most partnerships are about meeting higher ed's outcomes. And I think sometimes we're not as upfront about that as we could be. And I think that's where I'm agreeing with what you're saying in that if we were more upfront and more focused, I think that could actually help partnerships versus hindering them by pretending that it's just about wanting to meet a community need because it really mostly isn't just about that. Um, but I think it's also context specific. You know, there are hired institutions that maybe don't necessarily make for reliable partners. And there are corporate entities that do. I don't know if there's one thing you can say about any sector across the board. Yeah, I think it depends on the corporation or the institution. The one thing that I think principal is doing well and can be a good role model for other corporations around their corporate social responsibility is that they're a global company headquartered in Des Moines, but they have taken strategies and efforts to focus time in Des Moines in a reciprocal way with community partners to help elevate voices. Um, it's really figure out how their footprint does exist within Des Moines and how their impact can can be in Des Moines. And so I think they've taken a different approach to corporate responsibility that they can teach other corporations about partnerships in that way and think about their work in a different manner. And so that's what I, I like. And I think related to higher education, we obviously have those stellar institutions working hand in hand with their communities where, yes, it's about outcomes and, and outputs, but it's also about the relational piece of it. And, and so when I look at the corporation versus higher education, um, we have those great models out there on both sides. And, and I think principles a, a, a one of those, right? There, there's one other thing I just wanted to note that, uh, that Mandy's discussion of 
kind of the response of people when they don't succeed in getting a grant or whatever. And I'm seeing this applies to philanthropies, whether corporate or you yeah. know foundations or whatever. I, I always think, I mean, it is like one of the things that I have worked hard to keep front of mind when working with philanthropic partners is uh, this very simple mantra. It is not my money. And, mm-hmm. you know, you sometimes just think like, they should give it to us. They should support what we're doing. They should. And it's like they either will or they won't. As Mandy was saying, you really need to understand what their interests and goals are. And, you know, you may think those are the best interests and goals or you may not, just as others may look at you and think you're doing great things or you're a little bit off or whatever. But at the end of the day, none of it is stuff that anybody promised to us. And we either find those synergies or we don't. And we can err in all kinds of ways. One is by just assuming that somehow we deserve it. The other is by chasing after it when it really isn't consistent with our mission. But, you know, I think in both cases, kind of remembering that we are we are meeting an, a partner. And again, like other partnerships, the power relationships uh, can be real and they aren't necessarily smoothed over just by naming them. Uh, but in any case, uh, even if it's a powerful, you know, a partner who's more powerful than we are, uh, it is a fact that, that the money doesn't start out as ours or the resources or whatever it is. And that we either get to a place where we have some kind of agreement about what we can do together or we don't. Uh, but yeah, that, that was just helpful the way she was discussing that I found very useful. Yeah. And I think the, I mean, part of that is keeping in mind, it's also not their money. And by that, I mean, any staff member you're working with, right? Uh, They're unlikely to make these decisions on their own in any way. You know, usually that's a, there's a fairly large group of people making the decisions. There's a lot of context to that, including shareholders and what they're looking for. Um, from a corporation and its investments. And I think that always has to be kept in mind too. And I think where that is important is, you know, so much of the grant seeking process is about being able to really sell and explain what you want to do when really more of it should be about learning about what other people want to do and looking for matches like you were saying. Yeah, and I think I was going to say, I think some, you know, experiences that I've had, certainly, they're most satisfying when the partner, the the philanthropic partner, doesn't approach the interaction sort of as a black box, right? Some really give up nothing about what they're interested in, allow you to pitch, and then evaluate. And I I think it's just, it's a missed opportunity for connection, and as you're saying, for discovering some common ground that might not have been apparent from the outset. Uh, And and when that does happen, I mean, obviously it's partly satisfying because there's opportunities to do things, but it's also, you know, we've had experiences certainly that have involved real learning and uh, seeing things we wouldn't have seen because our philanthropic partners have a, a different perspective and often know a lot about a lot of different organizations and efforts and projects and models um, so yeah, I think there's, there's all kinds of opportunities in those relationships if everybody enters willing to show their cards and, and then listen. Yep. Yep. Agree. Well, we better get to pop culture slash resource sharing. Mm-hmm. Cause I know that we only have a couple more minutes, uh, of time left. So I have a pretty exciting one if you guys don't mind. Sure. Go ahead. So people might have already seen this because it's not exactly breaking news. This The article I'm going to reference came out a month ago in New York Magazine, but I just found it. So it's an article by Stephen Johnson in New York Magazine called Beyond the Bitcoin Bubble that I finally had time to dive into yesterday. And it's pretty long, so it is a dive. It is fascinating. And it's not really just about Bitcoin at all. It's about blockchain, which I still don't entirely understand, um, but really just the internet and what it uh, could have been, what it is now, and what it might be in the future. And I'm not an extremely tech-savvy person, so it really helped me to think about some of these things in a different way and maybe hit me at a time when I was primed for it because we've been watching Halt and Catch Fire, which is another thing that I would recommend to people. Um 
I just would recommend it to anyone interested in where we might be headed, um, sort of in terms of cryptocurrency, but again, not really. Me, me, really some bigger picture questions about the internet, who controls it, and whether that should change. Mm-hmm. Are you going next, Jara? Sure, absolutely, I can. I Sorry, I was thinking about that, Emily. I find that very interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, sure. So I'll share mine. I, I mentioned earlier in, in this episode that Evo Moses Core is keynoting our summit here in Indiana. If you're not familiar with Eva's work, she became well known in the 1980s when she publicly forgave the Nazis for the Holocaust. She was a Mingala twin. Um, and was tortured as a child. And based on her forgiveness, she founded the Candles Museum um, and Education Center. And Eva talks about forgiveness. And she talks about forgiveness not being, um, that, that it's a question of justice, that it's separate from, um, the forgiveness is, is based in justice. It's not, um, it, it's everything about the needs of the victim and, uh, or sorry, needs, yes, needs of the victim. Sorry, I'm all over the place here. And not of, um, of those who are the perpetrators. And she talks about how anger is a seed for war. Forgiveness is a seed for peace. I find her message really inspiring just because I've been doing this activity lately around soul points, which I won't get into. That could be a whole other episode. I borrowed it from a friend based on video games and the idea that you earn soul points or you can lose them. But what that does is I really prioritize how I'm spending my time, my energy, who I allow in my space, who I allow to take away my space, and who I allow to forgive. And so I find Eva's message inspiring. Her website, which is candlesholocaustmuseum.org, has inspirational videos that you can watch of Eva. It has an educator's guide if you want to talk about forgiveness in the classroom. Uh, She does tours. She has trip details on there where she takes folks back to some of the concentration camps to have conversations around forgiveness. So I just find her work really fascinating, especially the time that we're living in now and focusing on civil dialogue as well. I think a big part of the conversation is around forgiveness as a means of peace and justice. Well, I can't wait to hear how the summit goes. Yeah, I heard her recently on a podcast. I can't remember which one. And uh, yeah, just an extraordinary person. So that should be tremendous. I This this might be one of those uh, from the sublime to the ridiculous um, or something kinds of moments. So this is definitely in the resource, not pop culture um, kind of corner. Uh, and I wanted to talk about an article that got reported about in the Chronicle of Higher Education recently um, uh, about essentially the fact that assessment mostly doesn't work. And so this is a piece that was published in the fall 2017 edition of Intersection, which is the Journal of the Association for the Assessment of Learning in Higher Education, A-A-L-H-E. And the journal, their sub, their little kind of slogan or whatever is promoting assessment for learning. Um, but this article doesn't really promote assessment for learning. It is by David Eubanks, who is uh, vice president for, um, I want to say, assessment at uh, Furman University, uh, vice president for institutional effectiveness at Furman, and a member of the board of this organization. So this is a guy who is all in on educational assessment. And the article, it's a short article called A Guide for the Perplexed. And essentially what David Eubanks shows is something that I think most social scientists who've been involved in assessment at universities kind of have known for a long time, which is the two things you need to make analyses of social phenomena actually work are good data and, uh, solid models of inference that can logically produce the uh, the kinds of inferences you're making from the data you have. And he points out that in virtually all actual instances of educational assessment that happen in universities, neither of those things is present. We work from bad data and we use common sense inference methods that actually do not reach their logical conclusions and can in fact often lead to misapprehensions of what's going on. And he says this happens despite the fact that there's also a very strong um, discipline of educational research out there producing 
good data and good analysis based on it. But that's not what's happening when we do program assessment in institutions. Uh, we just mostly do bad stuff, but everybody is constantly asked to do it. The accreditors ask for it, et cetera. So uh, for most of us who've been asked to do assessment, I think this is a great piece to look at because it's very helpful in thinking about whether we've wasted a lot of time and in thinking about how we might actually get involved in practices that are more like high quality research and less low quality program assessment. Well, I will check it out. Maybe we'll have him on in the future. It would be great to dig into some assessment conversation. Yeah, I'm assessing yeah, that out of my idea. mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't use common sense. That's, that's no good. common sense allowed. Perfect. Yeah. Good. I don't have any anyway. All right. Thanks, guys, for another great episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back in two weeks. Look forward to seeing many of you, hopefully, in March at the National Conference. Have a great day. Bye, everyone. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.